BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Kodiak Shack podcast. I'm your host, Vader Brandon, and today I have a Stinger Walk from uh, Luke Air Force Base, and he runs a spark cell over there. Remember, uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Give us five stars if you think we're doing a good job. If you think we're doing a bad job, then feel free to uh, throw some spears to uh, Vader at KodiakShack.com, and uh, please check our website out, uh, KodiakShack.com. Stinger, thanks for being here, uh, and uh, I know you're on vacation, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, man, no problem. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, so you just recently took over the uh, Spark Sale, right, at Luke. So how is that going? Yeah, so uh, I guess kind of a misnomer, I guess. So the the Spark Sale here at Luke it lives, I guess, up at the wing level, um, and the I. I in a, in a sense, took over for uh, Rock Reed. I, I really took over for him on the operations side of all the innovation things going on in the wing. Uh, so what that means is F-16, F-35 innovation, I'm I'm the guy. I still work at the training squadron, um, so not technically assigned to the wing. But yeah, if, it's, if it has to do with innovation and it comes to training F-16 or F-35 pilots, that comes to me. Um, we still have a, I guess, bigger umbrella spark cell. Um, that handles all the other innovation uh, ventures going on throughout the wing. Um, and I haven't actually met uh, who's taken over for that yet. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, that's my purview. Yeah. That's kind of the best of both worlds though. Like no offense, but I, I never wanted to really work at the wing. So uh, getting to do all the fun stuff and work on all the cool programs and not have to work in the wing building is like a total touchdown. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So what are, what are some of the main programs? I know we've worked a few times in the past on programs, but what are some of the things uh, that have kind of come down the pipe that, that are some wins for Luke innovation? Yeah. So uh, just kind of speaking to the F-16 side a little bit, our, I guess our most far along uh, innovation project right now is uh, what I've been calling the virtual reality pre-brief. Um, started out as kind of virtual reality BFM. Um, and then we saw the utility of that be beyond just the basic fighter maneuvers uh, training DLOs. Uh, so it's expanded out to ACM uh, and we have plans to potentially expand it out to uh, BSA and maybe some other um, <clears throat> parts of the syllabus. Really what it is though, it's uh, the students get a virtual reality headset. Uh, right now we're using the HTC Vive Focus 3s and they can take that headset home and they can see 
BFM, uh, correct site pictures for BFM. So offensive, defensive, high aspect, uh, and then also ACM. One of the one of the biggest things I've seen as an instructor, especially at the B course, is when it, when you're debriefing a student on um, whatever error he made doing BFM, we always come back to what input error, decision error, and, and output error, right? Uh, so so what I see a lot of is the input error um, tends to be a a trend as far as I'm understanding. Hey, what is the site picture I'm actually looking for to fight BFM? You know, like I remember when I was a student going through the B course uh, years back, I remember I'd read the the tactics manual, the three dash three of like, okay, how do I fight defensive BFM? And it, you know, it'd tell you the site picture you're going to see using a bunch of paragraphs on a page and maybe a couple of still images. And then I would no kidding sit on my couch the night prior, like with my eyes closed, like, all right, there's line of sight forward, pause. And then I'd show up and fly it the next day. And I was like, oh, that looked nothing like what I what I chair flew a thousand times on my couch. because uh, I didn't know what the heck I was looking for. I'd never seen it before. Um, so this this virtual reality uh pre-brief tool seeks to um hopefully get rid of some of those input errors, some of those gaps in knowledge. So when the student fly, shows up to fly that first BFM sortie, he has a better idea of what he's looking for. Uh, and then hopefully now that he can, he can identify that correct side picture, then he can do the correct action uh, in response to that. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the important things that, you know, we always talk about, hey, these students need to be chair flying. So going home, imagining what it's going to look like, imagining what you're going to do with your left hand and right hand. But that's only as good as a student's understanding of the process, of the site pictures, of the button and the switchology. Uh, so that's a nice thing because obviously we worked together uh, a little bit on that. Really, I was just uh, downstream and got to uh, reap the rewards of your hard work. So I appreciate that. But uh, But realistically, that's what we want to get rid of. We want to get rid of the the noise or the outliers of, hey, an IP maybe explained something slightly wrong because they were just a misspeak or they were just off that day or the student misunderstood where if we have these site picture uh, replicators that they're going to take yeah. home, right? Yeah, so they'll take them home. So they'll have them at their house. They'll be able to get these uh, site pictures and really be able to see them and run through them because you think, live fly for a B courser with three offensive BFM rides uh, gets at most, I would say six, nine Ks. So you think they're, they're expected to get through their first sortie, probably see one, maybe two nine Ks, then their second BFM sortie, one or two nine Ks. And then the third one, they have to dem demonstrate proficiency. And the kid could have seen the nine K five yeah. or six times. And then we're like, hey, you don't understand the site picture. And it's like, obviously. So I think uh, I've talked to this a little bit previously, but we have to be able to make our efforts in the pre-brief, in the brief, and in the debrief more effective to get the training we need for the students because extra sorties, extra time is not going to happen. So we just have to effectively optimize the time we do have. Uh, so I think that's a total touchdown. I think that's a really good program. Yeah, just to, to pile on to that with what, with what you're saying there is, you know, I think in general, in innovation, I think one of the responsibilities we have, uh, one of the problems we're constantly trying to solve, at least in the B course, is increasing the quantity of available reps and then increasing the quality of those reps as well. You know, when 
years back, they short they decided to shorten the B course. We really didn't have great replacements for the loss of flight time that the students were getting. And obviously, like yeah, it's going to be way too expensive uh, to have them go out and fly more more flights, um, and and we're not going to have the time to do that anymore. But if we can increase the availability of good repetitions to those students, you know, sitting on their couch at home, I can get a thousand reps of an offensive nine k turn circle entry. You know, that's that's something we haven't had in the past. And you know, we we've tried to use some of the simulators, um, some of the more full up like MTCs and UTDs um, that are available on the bases. But a lot of the times, those still have to be scheduled. Those aren't as available, and you usually require some sort of a console operator to run it for you. Um, and so there's having these VR headsets available on your couch at home to just get a ton of reps. Um, I mean, I, I haven't seen a better alternative uh, than that. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things is you know exactly the innovation space's goal. So working with AffWorks, getting all these cibers is let's streamline or optimize what we have, which is technology now. We have stuff that didn't exist a couple decades ago or even a decade ago. So let's utilize that to make a better product. And I think Holloman, we kind of pursued the common ITD route of, hey, VR, uh, you know, not take home, but it's just, hey, we're going to make a low cost unclassified trainer so students can get reps. Uh, but Holloman actually has like a less than 50% utilization rate on their UTDs because they have like 10 or 12 of them. So it's it's kind of an odd spot. But most bases are exactly like Luke. Hey, we don't have enough sims for students to be able to get the reps that they would want or to get in those sims and actually get useful training. Uh, so I think these VR site picture trainers, the, you know, that pre-brief trainer, like you said, and then common ITDs are the way we do that, are the way we maybe not, maybe still not graduate the students on time because turns out weather and attrition and all that stuff, but at least the training they do get is going to be more effective and efficient uh, when they have these site picture trainers. One thing I actually said, kind of shifting gears, uh, I have maybe spread in WAMS, but wasn't uh, the human performance uh, gym, wasn't that a, a, uh, not a cyber, but an innovation program that kind of started and is now kind of grown into what it is at a, a bunch of bases? Man, um, I'm not sure if it started out in the innovation space. I know it's, uh, I think from the beginning, it's been part of the training squadron at Luke. Um, I don't know. I mean, the the innovation job has morphed. I mean, it, who's in charge of it, how it's organized, that's morphed so many times. Um, so it could have been, uh, but that, that was all initiated before I ever got to the squadron. So I don't know, but I know it's been one of the most like successful programs at Luke and it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's, that's one of those things that we need at every single fighter base around the air force at a minimum, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And that was, I was talking to the, uh, the fighter group commander at Holloman before I left and, uh, cause he hadn't, he didn't really work out at it. So he was just kind of getting my perspective. And I told him like, if this program existed a decade ago, like I would never leave because it, it's exactly what we need. Like I just wanted to fly fighters and lift weights. Uh, so it's like, oh, that's perfect. That's exactly what that, that, uh, organization's for. But the best part is, I mean, it's going to keep people healthy. It's going to keep people focused on 
being fit, being in shape to go do the job uh, and be capable to actually execute the tactics, especially in the F-16. You know, I guarantee 35 people, uh, 35 pilots rather, have uh, have their own set of issues and the F-16 pilots have their sets of issues and having strength coaches and uh, dietitians and physical therapists and soft tissue. I mean, that's, you see it across across the board. You know, we're, we're definitely don't need the physical attributes or capabilities as like a Navy SEAL or anything like that, but we still have a physicality to our job and understanding that and taking care of the, the pilot in the cockpit is, is important. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, we have, um, we have personal trainers available at the squadrons and they'll look at our schedule and they'll, they'll get on our timeline and go, Hey, looks like they're doing BFM this week. Sweet. I'll make myself available prior to everybody stepping out to the jet to go fly do a quick neck, upper back, shoulder warm up, and then you'll go out fight fight your high G BFM, and then come back and they'll do a a post flight um, neck, upper shoulder cool down for you. Takes all of a couple of minutes, and it really, I mean, you can finish your brief, go right over there and get warmed up, come back, land, put your gear away, and then there's someone available there to to help warm you down, so to speak. So it's man, yeah, just having that availability and that expertise is. I mean, that, that by itself is game changing, let alone all the other, uh, human performance team efforts that are going on. So it's, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. And I think, I think they're doing it right in the way that, uh, it's at the FTU. So Holloman and Luke both have these programs. Uh, they're under a lot of different names, but then pilot training bases have, I believe it's called craft, Mm -hmm. which is effectively the same program. Uh, but they just have them at most of the pilot training bases, if not all. So what we're getting is now brand new pilots. They're learning how to be a pilot, but then they're also learning how to uh, take care of themselves via their fitness and then their effort in the gym. Uh, and then they continue that through the rest of their their pilot training and then their B course. And then when they hopefully get to the combat air force or the CAF, they continue that. And that's just their lifestyle now. They they fly jets, they they work out, they stay fit. Uh, and then they're ready. Uh, so I guarantee Stinger and I have been the exact same boat week two of the BFM week, and we can't look left and or right. And, uh, and this is just our life until we're done doing BFM and ACM. And then when we get into the TIs and the BSAs, then our next fine. And then a couple months later, we're back to, uh, being mi- mildly immobile. Yeah. Uh, what are some other programs that, uh, that Luke is kind of working on or, or intends to work on that you think are just kind of interesting and cool? Yeah. Um, just to kind of close out the virtual reality side, we, we've uh, looked at doing virtual reality debrief, having some sort of a virtual reality tool that you could use in your debrief. Um, and I imagine it could be um, really just an expansion of how we already do our debriefs. Another way to give the student a better look at what he did in the aircraft so he can come back, see the BFM lines that he flew uh, in virtual reality. So, you know, he has that spatial awareness of where he is in relation to the ground, the horizon, the, the adversary, and then the instructor can manipulate that, uh, student's position in space as that student is wearing the, uh, the headset and go, Hey, you see this geometry now? Okay. That's the wrong geometry you want to be seeing. Let me move your aircraft to the right position and now look around and get a, get a look at what that looks like, and then be able to play that student back through that event. And he can see the pacing of what he should have done. Um, you know, I kind of imagine it uh, like it'd be like a fifth pen um, in your instructor set of pens. You know, just another tool for instructors to use 
Um, and then hopefully over time, that's something that um, we could iterate into a useful process in the debrief, like we do all of our other debrief techniques. Yeah, I think one thing, kind of expand on that to give people perspective on, so so that's what it would look like in the future of debrief is an immersive way to be embedded back in the fight rather than just watching it on TV. You're actually sitting back in the in the seat. Um, the alternative, what we have today is about a three foot long wooden uh, stick that has a scale model F-16 or whatever jet you're flying on the end and is on the IP to now orient those correctly to say, hey, you're sitting in the cockpit and you're looking across at this. This is not right. This is what you should see. And then we would adjust the sight picture. But in this way, again, leveraging technology, uh, giving them that real world experience, that immersive environment uh, is probably going to make that a much more uh, useful debrief point. Uh, because I mean, we say it all the time. I assume it's universal across a lot of industries is you, you learn in the debrief. You learn after the fact, when you take away the good and the bad, uh, you're not really learning in the moment because it turns out you're wildly busy in the moment. So you need to kind of take that time after the fact to gain that, uh, understanding and then grow your ability to see what you did well and what you did poorly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> Let's see some of the other stuff we're working on. One of the one of the other big programs that is uh, moving along and it's actually about to go live at Luke here in about a week or so um, is our automated squadron scheduling. Um, so anyone who is a squadron scheduler for literally any amount of time in a fighter squadron will will love this, or really any squadron, because I imagine it's painful in probably any squadron uh, to do the scheduling process. Um, just quick background on that. As a squadron scheduler, um, typically I remember when I was a young punk wingman, I was a squadron scheduler and my typical monthly schedule was one week of the month. I didn't fly at all because they needed me to build the rest of the squadron's flying schedule. Um, while it was really good learning for me on, hey, what does a fighter squadron need to operate? How do we make all the syllabi happen? How do we spin up for combat? What are all the resources that go into it? I got to understand that very well. Um, but I would have much rather have spent my time getting better at flying the F-16, especially as a guy with like 100 hours in the F-16 at the time when I was terrible. Still am, but much more terrible then. Um, I would have much preferred to spend my time uh, getting better at the job that, um, you know, my FSC says that I am here for. Um, so this, this automated squadron scheduling, um, essentially what it will do is it will take a handful of inputs from uh, – the squadron's DO on what his desired end state is. So in a, in a B course, it would be, hey, what's the graduation date we need to have for all these students? What's How many students do we have? And then what's our turn pattern going to be um, throughout the next few months to get them to that graduation date? Um, the software itself uh, already has all of the different uh, syllabi built into it so you can say hey this guy's going through the b course or this guy's going through a tx course um or whatever his syllabus is and it'll automatically pull all the prereqs that 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 student needs um and it can automatically build a schedule out for the next i think we're looking at like three months right now it can build that schedule out and it's going to tell you everything that you need um, as far as what airspace you need what configurations you're going to need um instructors, currencies, all that stuff. It'll automatically pull currencies for uh, 
you know, what instructors are available to teach whatever uh, is needed for those rides. And then it, it spits out your schedule. Um, so that's kind of the first part of it is it, it builds your schedule out for way further out than we've ever built um, schedules with that fidelity before in a fighter squadron. Then the other side is it'll deal with what uh, they call disruptions. So I think of that as when I was a daily scheduler, you know, I was just, I'd spend the day not flying usually, just, just putting out fires, you know, something come up, somebody would fall out of a ride, a student hooks a ride, um, you know, an instructor gets sick or we lose all the flights today because weather was bad or whatever, something that screws up our plan. Um, you know, you're just trying to fix tomorrow's schedule to have an executable schedule. And a lot of the time, the rest of the week, you know, let's say this is Monday, all the issues are happening. So I'm trying to fix Tuesday's schedule. A lot of the time, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they go un unfixed and I have to solve those problems tomorrow. Um, this software would also be able to deal with that kind of last minute fallout. Um, automatically figure out who or what your options are to to account for fallout. You know, so let's say... For example, an instructor falls out because um, he's he's sick. All right, so we don't have that instructor tomorrow. You can click on that day's schedule um, on where that instructor was, and then the software will automatically recommend three or four best options to replace that missing pilot. And it'll automatically prioritize those options um, based off a number of different metrics that uh, we've told the software, like, hey, these are metrics that we care about. Um, it could be anything from quality of life, like, hey, this guy's only flown once in the last 10 days. He probably, we probably need to get him a flight. Or it'll look at it and go, you know what? If we fly this instructor, we can rehack these two currencies because this sortie that is flying is a sortie where we can likely rehack these currencies. Oh, and there's an instructor already in the four ship. Um, so we, we have all everything we need to rehack those. Um, and there's multiple other uh, ways that it'll prioritize those recommended fixes. And that's awesome because as a squadron scheduler, I remember whenever I'd recommend to the DO, hey, here's my fix for tomorrow. They'd always ask, well, what do we get if we make that move? What What's the positive outcome? What's the negative outcomes? And help them make the decision. This automatically shows you those reasons. And then you can choose which selection you want to pick based off of whatever is the best reason. Even better than that, so just fix in a single day's uh, fallout. You can select the whole rest of the week, the next four days, and go, okay, I know there's going to be second and third order effects if I move this instructor in to this line on Thursday or on Tuesday. You know, maybe he can't fly Wednesday morning, even though he was scheduled to. All those effects, you can just solve, re-auto-solve for the rest of the week, and it's done in like four seconds. So it's it's a pretty awesome tool. Uh, obviously, hoping we're hopeful that it will work out uh, as uh, as planned. Um, but that's why we're doing we're doing beta testing starting at Luke here next month. Well, and I think that's there's two points that you made in there, and then I I kind of want to get your perspective on those. Is uh, the the human can do those things? You know, the human can sit down and say, "Hey, what are my limitations? What are my options?" But computers are just way faster at doing that. If you can identify those requirements, the computer can do it almost instantly. Where a human, it, it takes hours to like, hey, I'm going to research all of this and then I'm going to make a informed decision. So that's the amazing thing about that is we can, we can literally alleviate ourselves from a lot of the effort and work because we can use a computer to do it. The one thing I always wonder, uh, a stinger, I, I assume you've been in the same boat. When I was a squadron scheduler, I would spend a whole week building a schedule. And normally how it works is schedulers, 
you know, build the shell. So the general turn pattern, what time you're going to fly, what airspace you're going to go on Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, you start throwing bodies. So you start throwing, hey, these upgrades are going to happen. These pilots are going to fly. We're going to rehack these currencies. And then Thursday, you sit down with either the flight commanders and or the DO, the director of operations, so the number two in a squadron, and then you sell it. And you say, hey, this is the product I have for you. And when I was a uh, sidebar, but I was a chief of scheduling at McIntyre um, for my second assignment, and the DO, before he walked in, he'd say, what do you got for me? And if I had a good schedule, I'd say, oh, it's a Cadillac. And then uh, every once in a while, I'd be like, oh, no, it's like a Geo Metro. Like, this is not, this is not a good schedule. Um, but the, the tough part is, is just like in our grading, in a schedule by, there's subjectivity from the DO. Um, and having kind of worked with the company, uh, Ops Lab, who's kind of doing this, which they're actually going to come on the podcast oh, cool. in the coming weeks, uh, talking with them about it. The thing that was really exciting uh, for me was the DO priorities. And uh, I don't know, uh, Stinger, if you can if you can speak to it, but the the ability to allow the DO to provide his subjectivity initially is going to be nice because so many times you get Thursday and it's four thirty in the afternoon and you're halfway through the schedule cell and the DO wants to move someone that just craters the mm-hmm. rest of the week and you're like, this is not oh. fun. Yeah, um, yeah, one hundred percent. You can have the DO put in those priorities ahead of time. And then it, yeah, it'll build out that schedule automatically. Um, I think what they were showing was about, they could build like a three month schedule and have an auto built in about four minutes, just going through its, its calculations and teeing up whatever it thought was the optimum solution. So yeah, four minutes versus what, Oh, you know, we were basically doing a one-to-one. We took one week to build one week's worth of a schedule. Versus now we're taking four minutes to build three months worth of a schedule. Like that's, it's like almost, it's tough to like comprehend how much time we can give back to our pilots to go be better fighter pilots. Yeah. And you think, I mean, there, there is something to the process of scheduling. It kind of helps you understand things, but what people probably don't understand is in a fighter squadron, you go through pilot training, you go through IFF, you get through the B course, you get to your fighter squadron, you spend the first probably three to four months in mission qual training or MQT. uh, And all of that is about two and a half to three years, depending on the timeline of your courses. And then you finally are done with all of your upgrades and you're a real fighter pilot, you're mission ready. And then they say, okay, now go sit in scheduling one week a month and then probably be a daily you know, a couple times on your off weeks. And so sitting in the vault, doing all that other stuff in between being a video or a vault duty officer, if they even sit that, I think everybody has contract videos now. But the fact is like immediately after all of your upgrades, you immediately get taken out of the vault, out of your primary duty. You fly less than you would like to and you study less than you probably should. And that that could change with this. That could all be time given back for those fighter pilots to become better for tomorrow's challenges and tomorrow's fights. You know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm, I'm pumped to see this, this product get rolled out at Luke. Um, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Hopefully. <laughs> one, well, yeah. One thing I thought is, is kind of tough is, is funding. And I, I've talked about this previously, but, uh, AFWorks is really cool because they get a lot of funding to kind of just provide to, companies and sibbers and all that 
What's tough is that the funding, once you get to a base level and you get to kind of a commercial rollout or what would be referred to as a SIBR 3, and it's not really in the SIBR world, it's more base funded now, is a challenge because then it's it's kind of on the base. And based uh, money is, is, is hard to come by. It's a challenge to actually get these funded things funded. So, um, you know, my, in my experience, we did a lot of what's called UFERS or unfunded mm-hmm. requests, uh, which is, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to pretty much tee up this paperwork telling you all the things about the program and why we need it and how much money we need. And then, then at the end of the year, which is almost like it always happens, they say, we have all these millions of dollars to spend. And then hopefully your program gets picked. Do you find that uh, similarly at Luke, or do you think it's slightly different funding wise? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always chasing down, Hey, what's the funding source going to be? In fact, we, uh, I just spent the last week in Orlando at an innovation working group. And that, that was one of the first questions after, uh, um, they briefed the automatic, uh, scheduling software. One of the first questions was, so what's the long-term funding solution for this? And I, I was like, yeah, I wish I knew. Um, but yeah, AFWorks um, hopefully will be a big help in getting it fielded and, and fully up and running. Um, but then, yeah, there's there's always this, what they call valley of death, um, where we get all these cool, great ideas, uh, all these new training tools, whatever, innovated and produced and in the hands of the users. And then there's no funding on the backside to keep them alive. Um, and And that... That's really a, I think that's a bigger problem than each wing can individually solve. I think it's really going to take um, something Magcom wide or Air Force wide uh, on the innovation uh, kind of, uh, I guess, leadership level to make some sort of directive decisions about, hey, here's how we're going to transition these to programs of record and here's how we're going to prioritize um, at this level. And then that way, maybe we can have some money actually get pumped towards these programs instead of going through, you know, the, the UFERS like you talked about, which, you know, those, those UFERS aren't, there's not that much money associated there. Um, and so some, some of these bigger projects, they, they're just going to cost more than those UFERS um, can provide for. And those UFERS are, those are kind of like a last minute, like hit pocket. Hey, we happen to have some money laying around. If you want to keep a program alive and we really think it's worth the money, that's obviously not the way to do it. Um, yeah, I think, so yeah, that's one of my, uh, one of my buddies, he's actually a squadron commander in finance. Uh, and I told him I need him to come on the show to just explain all that because so many times, you know, we see, oh, there's, there's thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to be spent, but you can't spend them where you want to, or you just, why does the money get brought back up to the wing and, and even higher after a set date? And you're like, man, I don't, I don't understand this. And again, I don't think anybody's doing it to be a jerk. I think it's just the nature of it. And so I told my buddy yeah. that, hey, I, I want you to come explain this to me because I don't get it. I think a lot of people don't understand it. Uh, but it's really difficult to, to go to Ops Lab and say, we love, the, we love the product. We want you to produce it for us. We want to work with you, but we don't know how we're going to fund it. Or we can fund it for a year. And next year mm-hmm. we'll figure it out again. And you're like, man, this is really difficult because view from their perspectives, they're building entire teams and an entire company on a year to year basis, which apparently effectively that's probably reality for a lot of companies, but it's tough to say, this is a product we want long-term and we can't get it, uh, 
for sure. And I think one of the things yeah. that uh, I saw a long time ago trying to work the the VR uh, headset stuff was the once something gets to that escape velocity or whatever you want to call it to where it becomes a program of record. And I think that is always the tough part is who's going to own it. And the moment you start asking who's going to own a program of record, it seems like everybody disappears. It's just like a cloud shape of those people uh, because, (laughs) because nobody wants to. And, And because I get it. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility, but there has to be something kind of maybe in the cyber process or beyond the cyber process that says, Step one, two, and three from going Sipper two to a Sipper three is these people will own it or assuming, hey, it's either going to be A3 or A5 in your MagCom will own this program and then your base will effectively be the operational leadership. I, I don't under I don't think that exists. Stinger, let me know if, if you know of something that's better, but my understanding is that there's no real good path to that Sipper three and that long-term adoption. Yeah, there, there's, uh, if there is a good path um, that works well and is um, effective, I, I don't know about it. Um, and that was, that's kind of one of the, at that working group in Orlando last week, that was one of the big things that got discussed was how, where are we going to get the people? Where are we going to put the people to make these kind of higher level decisions to keep these programs alive? Because there's only, like you've seen, there's only so much you can do at your individual squadron or at your individual wing. Um, and it's, it becomes very stovepiped and we end up spending a lot of the same money on a lot of the same projects because yeah, we, we're just not aware of what the other squadrons are doing necessarily. Um, and so like this, I think this podcast will be awesome at spreading the word on what's out there from wing to wing. Um, but I think the problem of having some command and direction on how to keep innovation alive and how to transition these programs from nice toys to programs of record uh it we're we're gonna need that well and i think one of one of the hurdles and one of the challenges which i i try to understand you know when i was a lieutenant and a captain i kind of would just just rag on like oh man they just don't get it and now i'm at least smart enough to know i don't understand uh especially all the complexity um so Mm -hmm. so i i understand there are a lot of hurdles and there are a lot of challenges especially not that we're trying to replace any major programs or any primes or anything like that, um, at least not today. But then it becomes, how do you answer the, the questions that are, hey, you already spend or we already spend X millions of dollars on a program of record and you want to spend additional millions of dollars on another program that seems to replicate a lot of the efforts of this other program. So there will be a period of time where we're effectively funding two programs until one can can either get gobbled up by the original prime and then it just becomes part of the prime or it topples right. the prime. But I think that's a that's a challenge. And, and kind of at Luke, you guys have a, a one-star general as your wing commander, so you probably have a little more uh, kind of pull in the industry. But additionally, you guys have – you've just been in the game for so long. I mean, the contractors and all that. So the Luke spark cell is just – I mean, maybe you know more, but is very big in the innovation space of what's happening at Luke is probably the top tier of innovation. Yeah, that, that may be. Um, 
yeah, uh, Rock, like I said, Rock Reed was the guy who he ran that spark store for a while. And so, yeah, he got a pretty well oiled machine uh, going on there. Uh, I also think uh, from what I've seen as far as capabilities wise, um, the uh, so Bear Poplar out at Seymour Johnson, they've actually done quite a bit uh, when it comes to having uh, training tools available to the students. Um, they've got quite a bit more uh, as far as like what um, tools are actually in the students' hands um, than, than we do at Luke right now from a fighter training perspective. Awesome thing about that, getting to talk with him. Um, I've been able to see what works well for them and what hasn't worked well. Um, and so that's great because I can kind of re-vector where we want to go on the F-16, F-35 side with, hey, what should we purchase? What should we avoid purchasing? What kind of people should we hire to help keep this this uh, this plan moving um, based off of a lot of their lessons learned as well? So yeah, it's a couple of real strong wings um, putting up some good innovation projects to train our guys better. Well, I think that's one of the one of the cool things about the innovation space because the DOD being massive and the Air Force obviously being a massive program in and of itself is that very rarely are things um, kind of, uh, they're, they're all cookie cutter. So you don't get to have, you know, pick your style or pick the things you want. You just kind of get the program that the, the Air Force is given and then everybody has to use it as they can. Where innovation right now, especially at this stage in it, so much of it is, uh, kind of what you want. You, I want this. I don't want that program. I, I want to, and you can kind of curate it in a way that fits your needs the best. Uh, and I think that's, that's pretty cool about it because you can, you can focus your efforts, you can focus your money and your time on those things. One thing, uh, I actually was asked this question and I'll kind of pose it to you. So it seems like a lot of innovation comes out of AETC and not ACC. So thinking, you know, I guess Seymour Johnson is is ACC, but the FTU side, uh, it seems like at the FTUs, we just have between Luke, um, DM, uh, Holloman really is just kind of getting into the game. But Seymour, there's a lot of innovation out of there and not out of the Shaws and that. Why do you think that's the case? Um, man, that's a good question. Probably because the number one job at a combat or an ACC wing is it to train their guys necessarily it's to prepare and go to combat um so they you know they they have that as their number one focus they probably don't have i mean i remember being in uh acc we didn't have a lot of extra time to like hunt down contracts like we i'm sure there's millions of good ideas rolling through the bar every friday night but you know like doing this job as a chief of innovation i've had to become like kind of a contracting officer, kind of a finance officer, all these like skills that I was never given any formal training on. That, those are all things I've had to go talk to people and find out how to do, um, which I have the time available because I'm not spinning up to go to combat or I'm not actively deployed in combat. So my number one job, unfortunately, isn't to be in combat. Um, so I think that's, that's probably one of the big limitations. The other huge limitation is... Um, classification a lot of these innovative efforts they're nice but they're very limited because a lot of uh what we do in fighter aviation is relates to classifications in some way and so it gets very limited on hey how how much can this actually train us to use our jet optimally 
Uh, and so that's that's another big problem we run into even at even at the FTUs is hey how do we get this thing classified at the appropriate level um, and even just figuring out that process is time consuming you know yeah and I think so it kind of oh go ahead good I was just gonna say it kind of ties back to that like what you know in an innovation shop like right now I'm a shop of one um, but you really need like a shop of like, you need like a contracting officer. You need a finance officer. You need all these experts with the training and the knowledge and the experience of how to do all these parts that end up producing a innovative solution. Um, you know, we, we barely have that going on at the FTUs. Um, I, I imagine it's, it's the same problem at a combat wing you don't have the people necessarily available to go into those spaces to, to make that innovation happen the way we need it to. Well, and I think it's, I think you're exactly right. You know, you just have the luxury of, of being at the FTU, maybe, maybe a little more time. Uh, but I think that's one, I mean, the entire squadron is IPs, you know, instead of having super young guys, you know, kind of younger flight leads and then IPs, the whole squadron's IP, so everybody's a little more experienced than the average base, uh, so they can kind of spend a little more time elsewhere. Uh, but one thing I think is wonderful about that is everybody gets so hung up because they're, oh, ACC. Oh, ACC. I want to pitch ACC, and ACC has the dollars. And you're like, you understand that ACC is kind of in the dark to this stuff because AETC, for the most part, FTUs, are just the place. you know. So it's almost like, just like our students, that the B course, the FTU is the testing ground for them before they make it to ACC and their calf base. Innovation kind of does the same, you know, so innovation kind of cuts its teeth and, and grows and, and develops in AETC before the ACC ever finds out about it. Uh, so I think that's, that's something that's kind of cool. One, there's, there's a little more time, there's a little more, um, age or just seniority in the air force, but then in addition, uh, that's that's where these these programs grow and then hopefully acc and all these organizations pick them up if they're good because an automated scheduler uh i was i was talking about it previously i think back in the 80s somebody wrote a paper on we need to automate the scheduling process and then now in 2022 we're like we think we figured out the automated scheduling process so every person will be ready to adopt an automated scheduler. Um, so I think, I think mass adoption is, is an easy one there. It's getting the word out. It's getting, letting people know the stuff you're working on. Because when I was kind of running the innovation thing, uh, at Holloman, the, uh, I would call like Shaw and say, Hey, have you guys heard of this? What are you guys working on? And they're like, I don't even, do we have an innovation guy? And you're like, okay, copy. And so it's it's kind of funny how different they are. And it, it's kind of sad how little people know in the broader Air Force. And Stinger, before you kind of got into this space, you know, did you even know about the innovation space or how massive it was before you got into it? Not, not even a little bit. I, I'd been at Luke for a year, um, not in the trues, just a, an F-16 instructor flying the line. I think I'd seen a YouTube video or something uh, with, I think, ASU, Arizona State, uh, how they were looking at some innovative, like, virtual reality. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Never saw anything else about it. And then I came over and uh, got put into this job. I was like, oh, there's way more out here. And then I went out to Debt24, the, the uh, unit that's helping innovate better solutions for pilot training, saw what they had. 
yeah, and then just going to some of these conferences and seeing what's out there, I was like, man, there is, there's a lot of technology and capability that we really don't even have to innovate and create. It already exists. We just need to orient it to apply to whatever fighter platform we want to put it on and go get it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, yeah, very eye-opening how much was out there that I was like, oh, that would have been nice to have. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the one of the tough parts is getting the word out because you would hope, you know, AFWorks has these collider events or ITSIX or, you know, AFOMS or AFRL. And there's so many organizations and companies and, and all of these people working on these programs. And the average fighter pilot, average DOD member, Air Force member, no clue. And maybe they have just the right information, you know, because there's, there's something to be said of having a subject matter expert be a part of the program. And that's what I thought was so cool of getting to work with these companies. They would say, hey, what do you want? How do, how do you use this? What do you see here that makes this useful or not useful? Uh, and I think that's important because we've all, all seen those those ridiculous things, just oversight by the people building the product that the end user could have said, that doesn't make sense to the way I want to use it. And they could have solved those issues. Would you say, yeah. uh, what would you say kind of moving forward? So kind of stuff that's not under Sibbers in the areas that Luke is working in, in the data analytics, AI, you know, all that kind of area, where do you think could be leveraged next to make more progress in the innovation space and just make a better product. Yeah. Are you saying as far as like processes to do that better or like individual solutions or. Yeah. Kind of all of the above really just kind of what, what are you hoping to kind of move into next at Luke or just across the board and in, in how you produce or how you innovate? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things um, that we need at Luke right now is some sort of a big picture game plan for Luke. Um, you know, and, I, and that ties back to some sort of an instructional system, uh, really, really going from, Hey, what exactly do we need to teach the students? What are all those individual competencies, all those proficiencies, all those de desired learning objectives that they need to have and organizing those in a way that we can then target solutions towards those and having a big picture game plan that we can reference back to. And then it's very easy to go, hey, is this just a nice tool to have or does it actually solve a problem? Um, so I think having that big picture game plan is the first, uh, the next big step in the process for improving uh, Luke's innovation capabilities. I think with that, the second piece is a team to implement that, that plan. So experts from those contracting finance areas, uh, maybe some sort of an instructional system design um, specialist who can um, help us build that big picture game plan and update it as time goes on and as syllabi change. Um, and then have, yeah, having that small team uh, to, again, execute and implement that innovation game plan. I think those are probably the two biggest things that we need. Um, I think if we don't get that, what we'll end up with is we'll have a bunch of cool um, items bunch of cool capabilities uh, and the future of keeping those capabilities alive will be unknown and difficult to keep alive uh, past their initial phase two, phase three cyber funding. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny, we do this so frequently in the fighter side. So if we're going to do an LFE, so a large force engagement, you think like a red flag or anything like that, where there's going to be 20 to 30, 40, you know, 50 good guys against 
10, 20, 30 bad guys uh, in a simulated fight, first thing we do is get the ATO, the air tasking order, and then the AOD, the air operations directive or whatever it is. And we say, all right, what is our objective? What do we have to solve it? And what are, what, you know, what's our acceptable level of risk? What are we trying to achieve? And then we work from there, you know, target back. And so it's funny how infrequently we apply those, that same skill set across into innovation or the rest of the Air Force. So I think, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect answer there in, in, hey, we, we need to have a plan. We need to have a roadmap because how, how are we going to know if we're achieving that, if we're on time, if we're not, uh, if, if we don't know? And then continuity. You know, you think if you have a roadmap and then in, you know, because six to nine months, you're going to be out of the seat because that's how the Air Force works and someone else is going to be there. And then it, it's, it's going to either continue or not. And if there's a roadmap, at least that person has some sort of vector uh, because that's it's always tough, you know, it's, Maybe it's good because it doesn't create complacency in jobs or it intends not to have complacency. But the reality is it, the constant turnover causes a lot of flail and it, it, it almost seems distracting or even debilitating in some ways where you're like, man, everybody is just learning their job always in every position. And you're like, that doesn't seem like we're actually making headway. Yeah, exactly. There's so much lost, uh, I guess you could say like corporate knowledge because, you know, someone shows up to a job, they have a great bunch of ideas to keep that job operating and, you know, just making it happen. And then, yeah, like you said, they move on and then there's like a two or three month gap between the next guy who comes into the job. Like that's, that's how this job happened for me. There's a couple month gap between the outgoing guy and me. Luckily he was still around the base so I could ping some questions off of him, but he was already focusing on his next job. Um, yeah, and I've seen that multiple times throughout the Air Force at every base I've been at. And it's just, I think it's just the nature of the beast when you have a bunch of guys and gals whose number one job is to be a fighter pilot, and then they have all these additional duties, the priority gets appropriately placed on them being fighter pilots. And then kind of the back burner job becomes those additional duties, those additional office shop positions, um, and there's not as high of a priority to keep those jobs filled as there is to keep fighter pots and cockpits, which is appropriate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having that lack of continuity. Um, yeah. We end up reinventing the wheel multiple different times in multiple different ways. And then we end up with like a car that can't quite drive straight. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, why did this happen? Well, I think it's that, uh, you know, it's that death spiral where you're like, Oh man, everybody's just so busy. You know, we're all hands just to produce pilots. We don't have time mm-hmm. to innovate. But if we spent time innovating, we would probably gain time to help produce fighter pilots or at least produce them more efficiently. Uh, so you're, you know, it's that, do I spend time away from my primary duty to try to make my primary duty more achievable? Or do I just like keep with my nose to the grindstone, just keep plugging away and and hope someday it gets created, you know, uh, out, of, out of thin air. So I think it's, it's good that dudes like you are spending your time uh, because the reality is, I think a spark cell can be as good or as bad as the guy in it. You know, if if you're working and you're trying to put an effort and trying, it's probably going to do great things and it can go places. Or if you're like, sweet, this is just a great way to say, oh, I'm at my office. And then you tell your office you're at the squadron and then you're at home. You know, some people, I've never done that though, obviously never. But uh, <laughs> but that's one of those things where you can you can kind of skate in some of those jobs. And it's kind of unfortunate when people do, uh, especially when the 
when the outcome or the, or the benefits can be so great, uh, like these programs. Yeah. Yeah. Totally legit. Um, and yeah, the thing I'd add on that is even when you do have, you know, the guys who are in those jobs, given it, they're all the, the life of whatever they're working on after they leave the position, it's anybody's guess. Cause yeah, there's just, there's so often that lack of continuity. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to putting a team together to keep those jobs alive, that, that's where I really see a lot of value in um, having some of those positions be civilian because um, they can carry that that opportunity or not the opportunity, but carry that information about, hey, this is what we've already come up with. We don't need to waste time here. Let's focus our efforts on the next step. Um, and they can keep that going for years on end. Yeah, and I agree. And I think, you know, the unintended consequences can be if the civilian doesn't really want to innovate and, or just wants to kind of chill. Uh, but yeah, if, if there is someone that maintains that corporate knowledge that continues to gain information and gain an understanding of the space over the years and decades, that would be wonderful because then we can have that long-term roadmap to where the, the B course that you and I saw is not the B course that they see in 2022 or 2023. And it won't be the B course they see in 2033. Uh, Cause you know, people are still going to be going through the F-16 B course in 2033, uh, sadly. Um, Heck yeah. Yeah. You, you seen uh, Top Gun Maverick? I have. Yeah. Yep. What do you think? You know what? Like any Hollywood movie, they uh, there's still plenty of stuff they got wrong. But what was cool was there's a lot of stuff they got right, and it actually it, it wasn't distracting the things they got wrong. I was I was actually looking for oh they got that right and that was cool. Yeah. What else did they get right? Yeah, so I, it was it was entertaining. It was it was definitely a good movie to to go see. Yeah, I watched it. My uh, my brother in law he's a he's a big fan of fighters and everything. So he actually prompted me. He's like, hey, we're gonna go see this uh, on this date. I was like, all right, sounds good. So we, you know, he brought his, uh, my sister and, and some of their kids. And then I brought my wife. And, uh, so we went nice. and checked it out and we saw it on like the big screen or IMAX or whatever it is nowadays. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, I watched <laughs> it and I was like, that checks out, you know? Yeah. There's, there's some stuff that you're like, okay, I'll just push the, I believe button here. Or, you know, sure, but yeah. the, uh, you know what I thought was really interesting. Cause obviously they did a lot of flying from the backseat, the way they kind of captured, what a kind of the beginnings of what G loss, uh, or G induced light of consciousness or G lock, a G, um, or yeah, loss of consciousness. Yeah. Yep. But the, yeah. uh, kind of doing <laughs> that and yeah, showing the, showing kind of what it looks like from the eyeballs, you know, like, Hey, you're going to start to lose some light and you and it's going to kind of gray out and you're like, Oh man, that's, they did a good job with that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I thought they did a good job. Also just showing like, Hey, there's, still a pretty high risk in just day-to-day training. Yeah. And they, I thought they did a good job of capturing that. Like, yeah, it's sure. Combat's going to be, there's going to be a lot more risk, but there's not no risk when you're just doing day-to-day training. And I thought that was, that was really good to see. Like I've, I've had buddies who've G locked in the jet. I've G locked in the jet myself. And so it's like, yep, there's still a ever present risk to flying fighters. Um, so I thought that was cool that they, they highlighted that uh, in the movie. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, sadly, some of it's just a law of averages, you know, like, Hey, we fly a ton more training sorties than we do combat sorties. So the odds are we're going to have more incidents or accidents in training, but yeah, it's not like, Hey, I go up for a, for a sortie 
on an average day and there's, there is risk. It's not a riskless, uh, you know, venture. So yeah, showing that and, and we have a lot of our mishaps and sadly our fatalities are in training. Uh, luckily again, technology is, is making those things, um, a little less dangerous, a little more forgiving. Uh, but overall, you know, the job is, is, uh, I got told this a while ago, it's not inherently dangerous, but it's extremely unforgiving. And I think that's a great way to put it. Uh, cause it's, yeah. I think that's accurate. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely recommend the movie. That's yeah, good. for sure. Well, I told my wife, I was like, we got to watch it again. You know, like we can't just watch it <laughs> at the house, you know? So, cause I mean, that was one of the good parts is like seeing it larger than life and really being immersed in the movie, you know, sitting on your couch. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lame. So I only have like a 50 inch TV. It's not like I have some massive TV or surround sound. So I don't get that, uh, that movie experience, uh, at the house. So I, I told her we got to check it out before it leaves theaters. Uh, who knows if yeah. it's still there. I haven't paid attention. Um, well, uh, yeah. I'll let you get back to your, uh, vacation. Thanks again for the time and everybody please, uh, subscribe and, uh, give us five stars, even though I probably didn't earn it. And, uh, we will hopefully keep putting more of these out, uh, podcasts out for uh, people to learn more about the innovation space and the people working in it, uh, and the programs that are, uh, pretty awesome that hopefully are going to make some changes for the uh, fighter pilots today and, and in the future. So uh, Stinger, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me, brother. All right. See ya.